0: Hello, and welcome to the TTELT Podcast, Teaching Tips for English Language Teachers, a program of educators worldwide. I'm your host today, Jennifer Gonzalez, and joining me is the rest of my team as we have a discussion about assessment. So welcome, Amy Alice Chastain, Dr. Eileen Hale, Kira Sage, Beth Trudell, and Dr. Peter Edwards. You may have heard them on some of our past podcasts as they shared their expert advice and teaching tips on a wide variety of topics for teaching English language learners. Since assessment is one of our biggest topics that we have requested during our workshops and our talks, we thought we'd take this episode and the next few episodes to share some teaching tips with you on how you can assess your English language learners in a wide variety of settings. Today, we're gonna focus on how to assess large classrooms, how to use assessment data, what are some characteristics of quality assessment, and of course, it'll be full of great teaching tips that you can use right now. And now, to start us out, the first question that I have for everybody is, how do you define assessment? So let's start with Dr. Eileen Hale.
1: I believe assessment really informs our teaching practice. Um, It's integral to both the student learning process and facilitating their learning as much as improving our teaching as educators, because it informs us what they need to know and it informs the students how they're progressing as well. So I think it's an essential part of our everyday teaching, and I think it takes place all throughout lessons and semesters and terms. It's an ongoing, evolving process.
2: Yeah, I, I agree with what Eileen started us out with. And for me, uh, it's, it's obviously a very complex and mixed bag, but for me, it gives me some structure and it helps me to try to remember how to bring equality into the classroom, how to make sure that everybody has, has a, a, a similar track that they are on, that we are focused on what we're trying to do, and it's, it doesn't mean that everyone is the same level, but it, it helps us all stay on the same track. And creating equality in whatever ways we can is always uh, very beneficial to the atmosphere in the classroom.
3: I define assessment in what's probably a fairly unique way. I always think of assessment as advocacy. Um, I think this is the most important place Um, in some cases where we are advocating for our students for fairness, for transparency, you know, to really make sure that what we're asking of them is matching the expectations, is matching what we expect them to be able to do with the language.
4: Assessment to me and to me in my practice means it's a check for understanding. Now that we've gone to this point in our learning journey and we've acquired so many things, Let's see what we still have and what things might have fallen out of our bags along the way. And that's what we have here for assessment is just making sure that it's about ourselves and knowing more about how much we've retained as opposed to getting a certain score and performing for some whatever arbitrary reason.
5: I feel that assessment should be a learning experience. A learning experience, and as Eileen said, not just for the students, but for the teacher too, so that I know what I'm doing right and what I should improve. Thank you all.
0: Those are some great ideas on how we each define assessment. It's very clear that assessment is a process that is continually taking place in our classrooms on a daily basis. It's meant to provide some equality in our classrooms, as well as advocacy for our students. It is used by both the learner as they track their learning journey, as well as to give feedback to the teachers on how we are doing in teaching our learners specific topics. So now. My second question, and one that a lot of people have asked about, is what are some components of quality assessments? How do we know we're creating or using quality assessments? Beth, I'd like to start with you.
5: I'm going to go back to what we all learned um, as we were becoming teachers, and that is validity. Is your test measuring what it's supposed to measure? And, you know, sometimes we look at the results of an assessment. And we go, everybody missed that. Nobody included, let's say in an argument essay, nobody included what somebody might say in disagreement. Um, And instead of saying, gosh, all the students must have been asleep on the day that I taught that, I look at myself And I think, okay, my test may not be valid. My assessment may not be valid. And because it's not measuring what it's supposed to be measuring. So instead of blaming the students, I think we have to look at our practices of creating assessments with validity.
2: Um, Well, I guess the evil twin to validity is reliability. And Uh, This is really important in big classes, and if if you have a lot of classes or big classes, or if you're talking about something over time, so by reliability, it's like, well, if I use the same assessment again and again, am I getting similar results? Is it reliable? And I know that right now I have four classes where I'm teaching the same thing. And I sometimes forget, did I say this in the first class or in the third class? And so I need to check my assessments and the results of them to see, because maybe I made a, a mistake and uh, and so it's not reliable. There's a, a change in the results. And this is also true over time. It's like, well, are we getting reliable results um, over over time or over space, Are, is this true in other places? So we really have to keep an eye on the assessment. And uh, as Beth said, not just blame it on the students, but also let's look at the test. How, how valid and how reliable is the test?
3: Um, so a quality assessment, I don't think that there's a one size fits all. Um, the best way to view assessment is I think from a backwards planning um, perspective. Uh, And I think this is where sometimes we fall short and it's easy to do with even without realizing it sometimes. We have to look at our student learning outcomes, our course objectives and say, what are those can statements, right? What are we wanting the students to be able to do at the end and make sure that those assessments, whatever they look like, are pointing to those can-do statements. If they're not, then I think we're doing a disservice to our students. Like we're sending confusing, conflicting messages. I really wanna make sure, because I I care more to see my students can do something with the knowledge that we're giving them than to just regurgitate or show that they've memorized something. That's not helpful, especially in language. Um, You want them to, we, we wanna see what they can produce, right? And, and look at the outcomes in those ways. And it may start with that, right? If your outcomes are kind of murky or not really clear, maybe we need to start there so that we can get to quality assessment.
4: One thing that I love about having the freedom to make my own games, to make my own assessments from scratch is tailoring that content to my student's situation. In my personal teaching practice, I'm working on it with a lot of one-on-one or one-to-a-few situations. Um, so in that case, I get all of the fun and making sure that if my student really loves Dogman I'm going to make a dog man test. I can still test them in the skills. Do they know adverbs? Do they know adjectives? And I can still put that in a fun context. So for me, it's about making sure that whatever is in your test question, that your student is aware of that. If your student lives in a country where they don't have skyscrapers, don't use the word skyscraper on your test, for example. And so that's the only thing I would say to teachers to be really sure that whatever vocabulary, whatever grammatical structures you're putting into your test, make sure that you've already covered that and that your student has some experience with that beforehand.
1: Um, I think quality assessment is ongoing assessment, both informal and formal. As I mentioned, I think you can assess at the beginning of class to see if they remember what you taught before, the day before, the week before. take assessment like you're taking their pulse, if you will, in the middle of the class, take a break, say, what did we just cover, have a time for questions and answers. And of course, at the end of class, as the traditional type of exit slip, or a time for questions for what did we not understand what do we still want to know The traditional KWL chart. So leave them with what do you want to know at the end of class and have them share questions.
0: These are great points. I heard in here that we need to make sure our assessments are valid as well as reliable. And when we're thinking about reliability, it's reliability over time and reliability across different raters. But also very important that our assessments are relevant, that they are measuring what we think they're measuring and that they are related to our learners so that the content or the context of the assessment is related to our learners. And finally, that assessment happens continually. It's both informal and formal over the period of time that we are working with our learners. So now onto my next question, and I'd like to take a little peek into each of yours teaching environments. So my next question is, what does assessment look like in your classroom. Kira, let's start with you.
4: Assessment looks a little bit differently in my classroom or my hybrid learning environment. I don't like to use, I don't like to print out a lot of paper or waste trees. Those types of tests tend to scare people and that's not what I'm trying to do here with the English language. I'm trying to lower that affective filter and get people excited about their progress. So I do this, my assessments are actually games. If you've seen my episode, that's on low prep or no prep games with Wordwall. Wordwall is my go-to tool for making, for example, Pac-Man style games. It's either you know that vocabulary word or that purple monster is going to eat you. So
3: know your stuff. I would say that if you were an observer in my classroom, you may not know that's what you were looking at. Um, I try to make it as similar to you know the everyday activities and tasks that we would be doing anyway. A lot of assessment um, for me is, like I said, just kind of repeating things and then deciding when they seem to have the hang of it, when they seem to you know feel more comfortable and say, okay, now I'm gonna count this one, <laughs> you know? Um, so um, I think of like most recently, like in listening, Um, or not listening speaking class like an oral skills class Um, a lot of that is just in very authentic practice of pair discussions or small group discussions seeing that they can do something with what we excuse me seeing that they can actually do something with what we've been practicing and they can listen to each other they can repeat things they can um you know, achieve the functions of the
2: language. These days, I am working with quite large classes, and not so much that in my one classroom. I have a lot of students, but uh, the assessment goes across several sections, and I have many colleagues, and we're all teaching the same thing. And so we have to find some standards with our assessment across all all places and uh we've we've talked about equality it's kind of a, a fun and exciting thing to try to make a wide hundreds of different people feel very comfortable that they are being treated fairly and that's you know that's a very key moment because Uh, As soon as they're feeling that they're not being treated fairly, the motivation to learn goes down.
0: It was so great to hear how assessment looks in each of your different learning environments, whether it's games in an online learning um, platform or space, to assessing in small groups or pairs, or building that alternative assessment where you're making an authentic type of assessment environment for the writing practice. And also being able to collaborate with your colleagues if you're doing assessment in large class settings or course settings across different sections. These are all great tips. So thank you for sharing those. Now, my next question is, if you had one tip to share with our listeners about assessment, what would it be? Eileen, let's start with you.
1: My assessment tip would be continually assess, and as was previously mentioned, assess for things that are most relevant, as you and Beth mentioned, Jen, that are relevant for your life outside the classroom. Because we can get caught up often in the book knowledge and what we're supposed to teach for the given curriculum in our school district or classroom or university. But I think most important, as Beth said, five years from now, what do you need to know to use in the real world? So. My biggest tip is focus on assessing what they're gonna use daily outside of the classroom.
2: I I like what Eileen just said, and what we're getting from, what I'm getting from the conversation is just this wide rainbow of different things that we can do with assessment. I like sometimes to have some very, very low stakes assessments where it's kind of gamified, similar to what Kira was saying, but just where you can have some points or some things that are going on that are are fun and, uh, and exciting. But we all know so many of our students love video games, but they can get maybe a second chance. They get a score, they get something that's happening and it keeps it exciting and going but the stakes are low. So having some assessments that actually do not impact their final grade in the course, but allows a little bit of excitement and fun in the classroom. I I like to do that occasionally outside of the uh, actual scores that uh, will be their final grades.
5: I agree with everybody about how application is so important. And um, at my university, we had to have two quizzes at certain times, and you know I really disliked the multiple choice the true or false that quiz that they've been doing all their lives. And so I always have my students keep a learning journal on what helps them to learn and the barriers to learning. And I asked them to write in their journal for our quiz um, about how they were gonna apply the skills. We had just been working on paraphrasing and some other elements of a summary. And how would you apply those in your other classes? How will this help you in your other university classes? And they said, let's do that kind of quiz all the time. They enjoy the journal writing and they enjoy thinking about application.
3: I think that one of the most important things that we can do from an assessment standpoint as the teachers that have control is to really look at our rubric. Um, Be sure that our rubrics are strengths-based rather than deficit-based. Be sure that a perfect score doesn't equal perfection, you know, in a prescriptive way. Um, as, As listeners can tell in this, I have false starts, I'm retracing my steps, I'm probably making grammatical errors um, to communicate because I'm speaking spontaneously, right, and that's natural language, um, and so being sure that what we're rating is balanced, that, you know, grammar is not half of, you know, a score, and, and the perfect grammar is the expectation for as just as an example, you know, in my rubric, that might be like a sixth or something in a speaking rubric. And I'm looking at content. I'm looking that they're able to keep conversation going. I'm looking that they're able to use those turns, those moves, that they're able to use um, materials, information, refer to sources, um, work together. And that I can understand them. I can clearly um, comprehend what their ideas were, what their contributions were to that conversation. So that would be um, my biggest tip, where I think some people, they don't think through totally when they're assigning numbers, what those numbers translate to, and is that an accurate, valid score for what they just accomplished.
0: Once again, there were some great tips there. Some of the things that really stuck out for me was to make sure that when we are assessing our learners, that the assessment is connected to what our students actually need to know or be able to do with the language in their real life. Also, sometimes we need to make our assessments low stake, meaning that they don't have a big impact on the overall grade of our students. Next. When you're thinking about the assessment, whether it's a rubric or some other guide to how we are evaluating our learners, make sure that you're evaluating what you think you are. Finally, test out some of these alternative assessments. I really enjoyed the journaling idea that Beth shared. So my next question comes from our audience, and it's around large class sizes. Many of our listeners work with class sizes of 60 to 100 or more students, and they want to know, how do you assess large classes? Peter, I know you do a lot of work with large classes, so let's start with you.
2: It's always a challenge to deal with a large number of students. Uh, My colleagues and I, we work really hard at uh, creating Rubrics so that we can be standardized and all working together. I think that with these large numbers of students, uh, one of the things that we do connected with the idea of a rubric that, that gives that equality and that standardization is uh in some ways that rubric becomes like the mountain that we are climbing and we're kind of climbing that together and we can not so much be in a situation where i am the teacher and you're doing this for me but that we're all doing this to climb that same mountain and it gives us as as teachers as educators it gives us an opportunity to really believe in our students and And that's a way to do on a large scale that we're not just doing on a one to one because we have so many students, but on a large scale, we can say come on everybody let's climb that mountain let's do it, we can we can get to the top of this rubric and it's. Uh, it's there, There's a lot of, uh, of research saying that one of the best motivators for students is when they believe that their, their teacher believes in them, and that's a way that you can do that with large numbers, have that thing outside that rubric, it's kind of, you know, impersonal, but then that can be the enemy that we're all fighting together against.
5: That rubrics are very important. Mm-hmm. And we're going to talk about taking rubrics from the teacher's hands to the student's hands and having students create rubrics. But one of the things that I do with large groups is I turn those large groups into small groups. And for evaluating and assessing writing, I have them write in small groups. And it's amazing the energy that produces and how they lose their fear of assessment also.
1: Piggyback on what Beth just mentioned about assessing large groups into small groups, turning them into small groups, and particularly what she mentioned about reading and writing and mm-hmm. speaking, what I like to do is even put them in groups of three and take turns, Have one as the assessor, one as the reader, and one mm-hmm. as the listener, if you will, and take turns to... Mm-hmm because oftentimes you don't even recognize your grammatical mistakes until you read it out loud, even for native speakers. So I think it's really helpful for one to be reading, one to be listening and one to be like the teacher evaluating and switch the roles so that they all get that chance to evaluate each other, give the feedback. And as Beth mentioned, then it's easier for you as a teacher to collaborate and get the papers at the end when they're already pre-assessed, if you will.
4: What I can say for those of you who are working with large groups online, you can create a simulated world. For example, I use topia.io and I created different stations for my learners. Okay, if you want to do the speaking exercise, meet by the tree. And if you are there for the writing exercise, find the pencil. And you can have groups of students on their own accord go to different stations within your mapped out world and do different exercises that way.
3: So I think when, when you have large groups or even large assignments, I think this works for both. Um, I have found great success in staggering assignments, staggering when they're due. Um, so taking large groups and making them into smaller groups. And you know maybe I collect this paper or this um, assignment of, of some kind for this group of students this week or this day and another group a few days later or the next week. And that gives me as a teacher time to process, time to digest, time to read because I'm a very slow reader. I like to take time and be very careful when I'm reading student assignments. I usually always read it at least twice. Um, And so that way it also gives some autonomy to the students and especially if you have a group of students who may be taking a variety of courses, then they're able to look at their schedule and the, the course load and when they have big things due for someone else and have some control. And so, so that even creates just a better dynamic, a better rapport and kind of communicates a respect for the students and gives them some, a little bit of power over their learning. Um, so that way you can break it up. You can still have the same expectations Um, but plan out your your semester, your term, um, so that all the students are still getting in what they need and are still working through the process, but you can manage the load better.
0: Those were some great strategies on how we can assess our large classes, whether it's setting those common expectations for both the learners as well as the teachers across multiple sections through rubrics or breaking our group, our large classes into smaller groups. Um, Beth and Eileen both mentioned that and Eileen specifically talked about how she uses the groups to help with peer or self assessment. Finally, you might wanna consider the strategy that Amy Alice mentioned of staggering the assessments or assignments to help make the grading side a little bit easier for you as a teacher. Now, one of the last questions that we have for today is how do you use all the data that you've now collected from your assessments? Amy Alice, why don't you start us out by telling us how you use assessment data to inform instruction?
3: Um, There are many uses for assessment data. Um, but one of the ones I'd like to point out is about taking a look at ourselves as teachers. Uh, so, assessment data is really good for that, at looking at seeing what did I not cover as well as maybe I thought I did. Um, you know, and this could be true of something you've taught many times successfully before, and it just fell short on this particular time or this particular group of students because their strengths are different, their needs are different. Um, so I think it's really important to look at that um, when you see a pattern across a particular question or a type of question or skill. Um, And also for um, norming, of course, for making sure that students are getting an equitable experience across multiple teachers that are all teaching the quote unquote same course. Um, You can look at assessment data across the board to make sure that in general groups of students could be expected to kind of follow along similar lines. Um, And I think that's really valuable.
5: Well, this is where I really use data to improve my teaching. And that's that's what I'm very interested in. And also to improve how I can construct the different assessments, you know, was it the right prompt um, the right reading Were they really involved in the reading and one thing I do to gather data and this sounds informal but it's really it's a great data collection activity is every morning I have the students do the review of the previous morning and they work in pairs or as Eileen said groups of three like Eileen I like the smaller groups And they talk about what was the most important point to them, a point they can use, a point they enjoyed, and then they share it um, from their small group. And that gives me immediate data on how I taught the day before. And what they think is important sometimes really surprises me. And sometimes I think, oh my gosh, I really missed it on getting across the main point of this. So that gives me great data and I can improve it right away. After they review, I can emphasize some different things.
4: The way I collect assessment data is through my games. So after they finish the game, it automatically logs everything that they got correct and everything that they've gotten incorrect. So this makes it really convenient for me to take everything that they've done, showing me areas that need to be worked on and inform- forming my practice and letting me know what they've mastered, what they're rocking and that they can answer in a matter of seconds.
2: Um, I have a, a funny little acronym that I use, ABCD, always be collecting data. And uh, I, I use this with my students to always be charging devices because they always say I only have 5% left on their phone. Anyway, um, moving away from the purely instructional side of data. I think it's important for a lot of us as educators to think in terms of professional development, and how you might be able to publish something or do something with some of the data that you have. So finding uh, doing some simple things with uh, Google Forms or, or something like that, where you can collect some da- data and maybe even be balancing it a little bit where it's helping your class and also informing you and how things are going and, and to think, you know what, I might be able to give a presentation on this uh, in the next series of, of conferences coming up. so. Uh, it helps us to interact with, with what we're doing on not just the daily class time, but also thinking broader how this is going to improve me as, as, uh, as a professional in my career. So there's a lot that we can do with an assessment. And sometimes it's as as fun and easy as asking the students, well, which of these things that we've done in class uh, is most interesting, and turn that into uh, a paper, an abstract, or a presentation at a conference. Always be collecting data.
0: So as you can see there's a lot of ways that we can use our assessment data and one of the biggest ways is to start by reflecting on your practice as a teacher. Have you been teaching what you think you've been teaching? How are your students progressing through the progress? It's also a great way to give feedback to your learners on what they've mastered and what they still have left to learn on a topic. And then finally, Peters sums it up greatly with ABCD, always be collecting data, and that you can use that data not just for giving feedback to students and reflecting on your teaching practice, but also as professional development by sharing it with others at conferences or through articles that you've written. Those were some great teaching tips. So thank you Dr. Eileen Hale, Amy Alice Chastain, Beth Trudell, Kira Sage, and Dr. Peter Edwards. You have given us a lot to think about, and a lot that we can use right away to improve the assessments with our English language learners. So remember to keep listening to the next few episodes if you want more great tips on assessment with English language learners. We're going to have an episode on formative assessment coming up, as well as how to develop and use rubrics to assess your learners, and a really neat uh, assessment strategy for reading comprehension that also uses speaking skills. Now, if you want to stay up to date with us here at TTELT, then you can join our TTELT.org website. Sign up for our weekly newsletter. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, YouTube, and you can follow us wherever you get your podcast. So stay up to date with us and we'll see you next time.